Hello, Ecclesia. It's Pastor Sean, and I hope that you are having a great and meaningful day. I know that um, as the time wears on in our self-isolation, that we are struggling with some things that we didn't anticipate and working through some things oftentimes that we couldn't have guessed. But my um, prayer and my hope for you is that you are finding some connection and meaning in this time. And knowing that things aren't the same and may not ever really be the same again, I wanted you to know, Ecclesia, that we love you and care for you and want to connect with you any way that we can. And we want to care for you well. So if you're not aware, there are just a number of connection points and offerings that are available to you and to the people in your home and your family. Um, one is our online worship gatherings. Each Sunday, we gather online at our um, Facebook page to share in worship together, to share in communion, to connect. There are a number of staff members who are hosting watch parties via Facebook at the same time, and they would love to connect with you there. Each worship gathering is followed by a quick Zoom check-in that you can just hop over and participate in. Uh, we're broken into smaller groups, so people really get, a, really get a chance to talk and connect. But also, if you're just sensing a need in your own life and family for some one-on-one -on -one time with someone on our pastoral staff, we have spots available for pastoral care sessions. You can sign up for a 15-minute spot or a 30-minute spot where our staff will um, be connecting with you to talk with you. Um, and you don't have to have some monumental problem, something that you're working through. Maybe you just want to talk with someone to share what's going on in your life. Those opportunities are open and available for you. Also, I really wanna encourage you to participate in Vespers on Wednesday nights at eight o'clock. Our family has found these incredibly meaningful. We route our entire day, our evening around Vespers at eight, and it's a time of worship and prayer and just a little stop in the week to refocus our hearts and minds on God. There's also family game night. If you've got kids on Friday nights, um, you can sign up for family game night. And there are a host of community meetups during the week. Everything that you could possibly be interested in, someone is probably offering a community meetup from for book readers to gardening, all kinds of community meetups. And at the same time, you found this podcast. There are a number of podcasts during the week. Our online worship is podcast every week, as well as this podcast in the middle of the week. And Pastor Chris does a podcast called Corona Conversations every Friday that's released, where he sits down with some of our partners and people who are doing ministry around the world, um, often in much, much more difficult circumstances than we are experiencing here in Houston and around the United States. And as tragic as the news often feels and as heavy as it often is, I want you to be encouraged to look for light. And I've been going back through some of my favorite poems from some of my favorite poets during this time together. And one that is always pretty close to the surface for me is Mary Oliver. And I just wanted to share her poem, The, Useless, the, the Uses of Sorrow. The Uses of Sorrow. In my sleep, I dream this poem. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. 
It took me years to understand that this, too, was a gift. So as hard as it is, as difficult as it is, could you, Ecclesia, could you begin to look for the spaces and the places of light in this darkness? Could you receive this time as a gift? And as we're led in worship and teaching today, would you allow God to come and do a tiny miracle in your heart to bring his marvelous light? God bless. Jesus, Jesus, 
precious Jesus Oh, for grace to trust Him more And more and more To trust Him more and more Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him How I've proved Him Precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. Hello, Ecclesia. It's Pastor Sean back with another episode of Quarantine Made Sacred. You know, last week we began talking about friendship and the God-given desire we all have to be in profound, meaningful friendships. And what we've discovered is that's really hard to do in times of self-isolation and social distancing. But it's still this need that all of us carry deep within us. This thing is built into the way that God created us. So we need to talk about how we are healthier and stronger people when we are engaged in meaningful relationships and friendships And that each one of us deserves people in our lives that aren't indifferent to their presence in our lives and our presence in their lives and our personhood. And that in this this time where we feel so far away, in fact, when we are so far away from people we are in deep relationship with, that we need that more than ever. We need to come up with new ways, um, creative ways to be engaged with each other. And so we need to get under the skin of this thing that we often take for granted and don't really understand all that well, which is friendship. We think we understand friendship really well just because we have always kind of had friends around from the time that we were first in preschool or whatever. There were just people around and some of those people were closer to us and we called those people friends. But I want to get underneath all of that to what the scriptures call friendship and what they call us to and how to be that for one another in this time and moving forward for the rest of our lives. You know, that archetypal story of Cain and Abel. And when that takes place, God asks Cain after he has killed his brother Abel, he says, where's your brother? And Cain replies, am I my brother's keeper? And Cain is absolutely wrong about that. He's wrong to ask the question back to God, not only just to obfuscate from his responsibility in his brother's murder, but we are one another's keeper. We have been given to one another. People rightly have a claim on our lives when we enter into a relationship with them, and we have a claim on their lives. And I know that we live in a time, we live in a place, we live in a culture where that's not um, seen as really cool to have a claim on someone's life and really not that they would have a claim on ours. But if you want to have meaningful relationships in this difficult season or in any season, we have to come to terms with the fact that friendship is more than just hanging out with people that we have a few things in common with, that there is something deeper that connects us at a more fundamental level that can't be so easily discarded and can't be so easily just added on or glommed on to in our lives. So one of the one of the great books on friendship 
We talked about this last time, C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. And Lewis talks about why we need friendships. He writes in The Four Loves, he says, By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other light than my own to show all his facets. And, and so what Lewis means is that one of the beautiful aspects of friendship is that different friends draw out of us different aspects of our life and our personality, that we really aren't whole without the people in our lives drawing out of us places where the light has entered and where God has designed for our light to shine. And you, you've probably experienced that. Some of your friends just bring out parts of you that being with other of your friends just, just doesn't. So guess what? To be you, to be fully you and experience the wide range of participation in life you were designed for, you need friends, deep friends. Now, I think we all intuitively know this. What we don't know as well is how to be a friend. So here's the paradox. In any group, most people would say, I'm a good friend. But in the same group, just as many people would say, I don't feel like I have good friends. So either we're lying to ourselves or we don't agree about what a good friend is. So, uh, so about 10 years ago, I was sitting in a coffee shop with a man who was in his 50s. He was disgruntled with the church where he was working. In his opinion, they weren't outgoing enough. They weren't forward thinking enough. And isn't that, like, isn't that everybody's criticism of their church, right? Like enough, that's the criticism. It's always that we're not doing enough of something or we're not doing something enough. And, and anyway, he sought me out because both of our churches had recently finished a series of congregational surveys that we had done with the same consulting agency, and he wanted my thoughts about the feedback that they had received. And part of the way, part of the, way the sur survey worked was asking the congregation and recent guests and members the same questions. And one of the questions was about the friendliness of the church. So when they got the survey back, overwhelmingly, the members of the church said, we are a friendly church. But when people asked the, their church who weren't members, people who were outside of their church responded, and they said, that church wasn't friendly. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people inside think it's friendly and people outside a church don't. But one obvious aspect is that people generally just don't agree with what a good friend is, what friendly even is. Because some of us think a good friend is someone who supports us no matter what. Others think it's someone who is reliable when we need a favor or to go grab lunch with. But one picture of friendship in the scriptures doesn't have anything to do with hobbies or hanging out or mutual support for decisions. It doesn't have to do with liking the other person. What it has to do with is 
one's own relationship with God. So about eight years ago, I spent a weekend in New York City on a retreat that was just for artists and storytellers. It was led by my friends, Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile. And I was, in, I was invited by a guy I'm friendly with, but I wouldn't say that we're close. And the other people that I knew who were there that weekend, I was friendly with a lot of them too, but I wouldn't say that we were close. And one of the other presenters and attendees that weekend commented to us how wonderful it was to see our friendship. And we looked at each other, all thinking the same thing. And that was, we're, we're not all that close. And this is what I realized. All of us in that little group, we all lived in different places. We're different ages, and none of us would consider the other people there particularly close. But if we chose to be good friends to each other, we would be good friends to each other. And the reason we would be close relationally isn't because of distance or the same interest. It's that becoming a good friend is an attitude of the heart. One of the more memorable friendships in scripture is between two young men, David and Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of King Saul, next in line to the throne. So when Saul kicks the bucket, Jonathan gets the crown. And like all princes, all princes through all time, Jonathan has only had one job his entire life, and that job has been preparing to be king. In all of Israel, Jonathan was the only student at University of the Next King, which is actually a big deal. He had to learn the world, know about business interests of his citizens, study warfare and engineering. Jonathan had to learn how treaties and governing worked and how to motivate and lead men. Princes actually don't sit around all day waiting to get dressed for dinner like a character in Downton Abbey. He spent his life preparing not just to be king, but to be a good king. But along comes David. And because God is displeased with Saul, God chooses David to become king. And it's through the line of David that Jesus, the Messiah, will come, the Savior of all Israel. And this just gets worse. Saul knows that David is God's replacement. And all across Israel, all the pretty young girls who used to swoon for Saul are now dancing for David. The one thing Saul could pass along to his son, his very throne, God is taking away. And Saul doesn't like it. Now, if you're Jonathan... This is a raw deal because God is displeased with your dad. You're expected to lay aside everything you've spent your entire life training for and working for. This is very un-American. How would you like your future to be based on your father's past? Well, in the book of 1 Samuel, book of 1 Samuel tells David's and Jonathan's story this way it says Saul's son's Jonathan was bound to David in friendship. And Jonathan loves David as he loved himself. 
Saul took David into his service on that day and would not let him return to his father's home. Now, what's fascinating to me about Jonathan and David isn't that Jonathan loved David because you have lots of friends, friends you'd do a lot for, friends you love, but you wouldn't give up everything that's meaningful in your life for them. I've got friends. I've got great friends. Those guys won't even buy me lunch some days. I know they love me, though. But love is not enough to give away your own life, your own future. Lots of people throughout history have loved people that they refuse to sacrifice the most important thing that they have trained for and planned for and prepared for for their entire lives just for their friends. But we need to read that carefully. And if I'm reading this right, Jonathan's friendship with David isn't only based on love. It's not based on convenience or usefulness or even enjoying being with one another. Jonathan puts iron in the glove. Jonathan's friendship is based on covenant. There's a story where Jonathan takes off his armor and his sword and he gives them to David. And when he does that, he's not just being nice. He's performing a public ritual, acknowledging a transfer of power. Jonathan makes a public covenant with David. Covenant is one of those words Christians love, but we probably shouldn't love. You remember covenants in the First Testament, right? When God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis, it involves cut animal parts and a, a blaze that's a tor lit and blazing. It, it meant that if one side broke the covenant, then they would be cut and dismembered just like the animal parts had been cut and dismembered. Now that's how you write a contract with someone, right? Forget about all this notary public business. Dead animal flesh, death is the way to handle it. If you break this covenant, someone's going to get cut. And then there's another covenant in Ruth between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi is trying to get rid of Ruth because it's better for Ruth's future for her to go home and find a husband. She wants her to have a full life. But Ruth says to her, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Your people, she tells Naomi, your people are my people. And then she tells Naomi this. She says, may God deal with me be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. That's a covenant. So when Jonathan makes a covenant with David, it's much more than saying we're going to be buddies. Jonathan's covenant friendship, like all covenants, isn't about Jonathan. It's not even about David. Covenants are commitments we make to God. 
Have you thought about your friendships, your relationships as a commitment made to God? Now, this is a place where a lot of us struggle. Because let me explain how human nature works. There are two things that always um, exist in your life, relationships and problems. And when a problem becomes more important than a relationship, we ditch the relationship so we don't have to deal with the problem. And then we lie to ourselves and tell us all the, ourselves all these little reasons why we're not in relationship with that person anymore. And so what happens is for people, for us, who don't have a covenantal approach to relationships, well, we're just always in and out of relationships. And then we resent the relationships that have problems that we can't get out of. I mean, how many times, how many stories can you look back on across your life and you see in the faces of those stories, used to be friends. And sometimes the reason that they used to be friends is because the problem became more important than the relationship. And when problems become bigger than the relationship, it's easier to ditch the relationship. It's not that Jonathan didn't want to be king. It's not that Jonathan just thinks David is a better fit for the job. Jonathan saw God's hand on David and followed God's lead rather than his own. Friendship, complete friendship, is committing yourself to God's plan for your friend. And I might need to say that again because we are so deeply connected to trying to find and live out God's plan for us. But friendship is committing yourself to God's plan for your friend. And you begin to see now that there are some people, maybe some people who are in your life that are really close to you, who you've always suspected, but it's becoming clear now, are just incapable of being a friend. And here's why that's important. All of us want God's best for the people around us. It's the beginning of how we learn to love our neighbors. It's different to commit yourself to God's best when that best comes with your reduction, with you not getting your way, with you being secondary and marginalized, even if it's just for a season. Have you ever been jealous of a friend? Maybe they got an opportunity that you wish you had. Ever found yourself befriending someone because they could do something for you? I had two mentors when I was in college and one moved away uh, to Dallas and he ended up doing something that he never would have chosen to do if he had been thinking right and been in a healthy place. He had an affair after having been happily married for over 40 years. 
And another one of my mentors was a good friend of him, his, and he found out about all this. And he says, I'm leaving where we were living at the time in Abilene, and I'm coming to Dallas to see you. And the first mentor who had moved to Dallas, he says, um, I don't think I'm comfortable with that. And my mentor who was driving to see him says, I don't care what you're comfortable with. That's friendship. Being committed to God's best for your friend. It's covenant. And all good covenants are also curses. All good covenants bind both people, not to each other, but they bind both people together through God. So if you're wondering how to be a good friend, like this is how. You commit yourself to God's best for your friends, regardless of what it costs you. And isn't that what so many of us need and crave right now in a time of social isolation? It's like people who are deeply, deeply invested in God's best for us, who in the middle of their own crisis of dealing with spouses and kids and jobs and the economy and sickness and anxiety and worry, that they are the folks who are going to get on yet another Zoom call, who are going to pick up the phone another time, who are going to reach out to us and pray and work toward God's best. And no, that's not something that you can do for everyone in your circle, everyone that you know. But there are a few people that in this time where we need people, when we need each other, maybe more than we ever have to feel connected in ways that are deeper and more profound and more meaningful, maybe than we ever have. Wouldn't it be incredible to know that there was a small tribe of people who are committed to God's best for you, regardless of what it cost them. And that there were people that you were committed to God's best for them, no matter what it cost you. No, you can't do that for everyone, but you can do that for someone. It's something you should do. It's what C.S. Lewis calls your inner ring. Friendship means sacrifice for Jonathan. In the process of seeking God's best for David, Jonathan doesn't only give up his throne. He gives his life. It's Jonathan who saves David's life over and over, and it's Jonathan who dies in battle with his father. Being David's friend costs Jonathan everything. And centuries later, a descendant of David's he himself, a king, will say that there is no greater way to love than to give your life for your friends. And if there's no greater way to love than to give your life for your friends, then there is no better thing that we could do now in a time of crisis than to be with our friends. 
And I can't help but wonder when Jesus says these words, if he's not thinking about Jonathan's friendship with David. Jesus isn't making up a new definition of friendship. He's reminding us of an old one, an old covenant that paved the way for the Messiah to come. And in this little sliver of an Old Testament story, we see how powerful friendship can be. And what we see is friendship quite literally paves the way for salvation. When the fields are dry and the winter is long, blessed are the meek, the hungry, the poor. When my soul is downcast and my voice has no song, for mercy, for comfort, I wait on the Lord. In the harvest feast or the fallow ground, my certain hope is in Jesus found. Jesus. 